Uh, Well, good morning, Gateway family. It is great to see you this morning. Find James chapter 1 in your copy of God's Word or on your Bible, James chapter 1. We're in our second week of our study of the book of James, a book that's been called the most practical book in all of Scripture. Just to remind you, last week we looked just at verse 1, the first 19 words to see an introduction to the book of James. And we saw this is a book written by James, who's the brother of Jesus. This book is written particularly to Jewish Christians. That was the original audience, people who have been scattered from Jerusalem due to persecution and people had really hard lives. And James wrote to them to encourage them to live out their faith, to walk in faith, to live out what they said they believed. Not in their own strength, not by white-knuckled determination, not by just self-effort, but to walk out their faith by relying on God's grace. With that foundation laid in the first verse, we now turn to the content of the book. We begin this morning with verse number 2. And as James begins, there's so many places he could start. But he begins with the issue of trials, hardships, difficulties in life, suffering. This would be very, very relevant for the original audience. Remember, the original audience, these original Jewish Christians, had a life full of trials. They had been in Jerusalem. That was their home. They'd been scattered due to persecution against Christians. They're now all over the Mediterranean region. They lost their homes, their jobs. Where they had been, they had to start all over in new places. And in these new places, they faced rejection. They were rejected by other Jews who saw them as betraying the faith because they believed in Jesus as the Messiah. So they were ostracized from the Jewish community. But they were also rejected by the Gentile community out of just pure racism. So they found themselves isolated, struggling, and for the most part dealing with a lot of poverty. They had a very tough life, and so it's very natural for James to begin with the issue of suffering and trials for them. But friends, if we're honest, it's a very relevant place for us as well. Many of you are walking through trials right now. As our elder team meets every other week on early on Wednesday mornings, as we get to pray for you, we get to pray about many of the trials you guys are walking through. We get a glimpse into your lives of the sickness and health trials some of you face, of the broken relationships that weigh on some of your hearts, whether it's with your spouse or with your kids or with your friends, the hardships some of you face at work with unreasonable demands put upon you, with harsh bosses, with misunderstandings that are troubling you. Some of you we pray for because you're dealing with loneliness, when your friends or family have turned on you, when your dreams for relationships have not worked out like you hope. We pray for some of you who go through financial trials and are struggling financially. We could go on and on, but many of you are in trials right now. And if you're not in a trial today, you have been in one. And if you're not in one today, you will be in one again in the future. So James's teachings for us, his commands to us about trials are very relevant to you and to me today. There's something really important before we dig in and how we approach talking about trials. If you remember from last week, we said that James was writing to encourage them because they had a lot of persecution, a lot of difficulties. But he wrote to them because there was a greater threat. The greatest threat was not on the outside coming to them. The greatest threat was their own sin, their own sin nature. And friends, the same is true for us. Our greatest danger is not whatever those difficulties and sufferings and hardships of life are. The greatest danger to you and to me is what's in our own hearts, our own sin nature. And the reality is in the tr- when we go through the trials and the hardships, they simply just squeeze us, and what's inside is what comes to the surface. And so as James starts talking about trials, he doesn't focus on the trials so much themselves. He doesn't even tell us what trials they're walking through. He focuses instead on how they think about the trials and how they respond to the trials. He's more worried about how their soul, their nature, than he is what's happening externally to them. So with that in view, as we come to James chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 2, 3, and 4 this morning. And I want us to think as we read this text, how should we think about our trials? When you've been through hardships, or if you're going through a hardship now, or when you hit hardships in the future, how should we view the hardships we face? So let's look for an answer. I can ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. 
James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I'm reading out the English Standard Version, and the words will also be on the screen for you. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we're thankful that you've not left us wondering what your will is for us or even how you want us to think about life. God, in your kindness to us, you've revealed to us your will and your plan. Lord, as we tackle the book of James, particularly as we tackle trials this morning, God, would you give us much grace to understand your word? Would you give us much grace to have our view on difficulties in life changed? Lord, there's so much in our own flesh and so much in the world trying to change our thinking and pull our thinking away from your thoughts. So we ask for much grace today to understand your word, that it might be transformative in each of our hearts and lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What I want you to see this morning in James chapter 1 is simply this. We can have peace and contentment in trials, knowing that God uses them to grow our faith. Friends, we can have peace and contentment in trials, knowing that God uses them to grow our faith. If there's anything that we can summarize this text with, I think that's it. The trials, friends, it's not a question of when they'll come or if they'll come. It's when they will come. So how do we respond to them? When we face those hardships, how will we respond to them? James is concerned about us walking out our faith, living out our faith. And so how does us believing in Christ change our perception, the way we think about the trials in life? I want you to see from this text this morning that regardless of the circumstances, we can have peace, we can have contentment, even on the hardest of days, not because of anything in us, but because of what God is doing in us and through us. We can have peace and contentment in trials, knowing that God uses them to grow our faith. So let's kind of take that apart. I want you to see that in the text this morning. First of all, I want you to realize that we will certainly have trials in life. And by trials, I mean hardships, difficulties, things in life that are not pleasant or enjoyable. Look back at verse 2 and notice how James describes it for us. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, and here's the word we don't like, when you face trials. I think all of us in our heart wish it said if right there instead of when. But it doesn't say if you face trials. It says count it all joy when you meet trials. It's a when. It will certainly happen in our lives. But then he has another word that I don't like here. He says when you meet trials of various kinds. I'm like, come on, James. That's not exactly the encouragement we want to hear. It's not just if you face trials, you will find them. But you're going to have various kinds of trials. Now, what does James mean by this? Well, in his letter here, he's going to address certain trials they face. He's going to talk about financial hardships in chapter 1. So financial issues falls under trials. He's going to talk about, in chapter 2, persecution for their faith. So being persecuted or ostracized by others because of what we believe falls under this. In chapter 5, he's going to talk about physical sickness. So that's going to fall under. So illness and sickness falls under this. But the word here for trials is a very broad word in the Greek, and it can include just about anything that's hard in life. You can include criticisms we receive, disappointments when things don't work out, job-related issues, death of loved ones, loneliness, depression, isolation, on and on we can go. Basically, anything that's a hardship in our life can fall under the trials here. Friends, the reality is experiencing trials is the norm for God's people in a broken and fallen world. And we don't like to hear that, but the reality of our experience, and if you look through church history, is God's people are going to experience trials throughout this life. We live in a fallen and broken world, and we will have trials all throughout our life. They will happen to us, so the question is not if, it's now how do we respond to them? How will we view, how will we think about those trials and difficulties? And James wants to change our thinking. Look at the beginning of verse 2, how he begins. His first word, count. 
That means to consider, to reckon, to think about. This is so striking that the very first command in the book of James is not something we're supposed to do, it's something we're supposed to think. The book begins not with action, but it begins with our thought process and how we're supposed to view something here. James is saying, you're going to have trials, you can't do anything about it, but I want you to make a mental judgment about those trials. I want you to have a particular perspective that you develop on the hardships of life. And friends, it's going to be very different than our default, very different than how the world views trials. How does the world view trials? Well, the world sees them as problems to avoid at all costs. You don't have to sin. You don't have to manipulate your way out of it. You're going to do all you can to try to escape from anything unpleasant in life. And if you can't avoid the unpleasant things of life, what do you do in the world's view? Well, you either blame others to make yourself feel better, or you try to drown it out. Whether it's drugs and alcohol and sex or being a workaholic, whatever you do, all you can to kind of drown out the pain of that. But he's saying if you're a follower of Christ, that's not your response. Remember, he's writing to Christians. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. That was a common way at the time, my brothers, to greet Christians. That includes both men and women. So he's saying to brothers and sisters, to Christians, if you claim the name of Christ, when life is hard, and it will be, intentionally change your thinking. Don't go down the easy path. Don't follow the rule. Change the way you perceive hardships in life. And how does he want us to perceive the trials we go through? Well, it's pretty radical. He wants us to view them with peace and with contentment. Notice what he says here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We may be thinking, wait, it says joy here. Why am I saying peace and contentment instead of joy? Well, I'm trying to get us to think about this from a particular perspective because, friends, this text, unfortunately, has been abused by very well-meaning people over the years and giving counsel to people as they walk through difficulties. So I'm trying to change the words to help us think about what this text means and what it does not mean. Friends, counting a trial joy, counting it all joy, does not mean that the trials themselves are joy. Okay? The trials are not joy. They're the result of brokenness. We don't have to say that trial is joy. Rather, we're told something different here in this. Counting all joy does not mean you have to enjoy the trials. They're not fun. They're painful. Counting all joy doesn't mean you have to feel happy about the situation. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to ask questions. Remember when we went through the Psalms the last six months? So many of the Psalms were lament Psalms of people going, God, why is this happening? God, what's going on? It's okay to ask questions. Counting all joy does not mean just choose positive thoughts. It's not a don't worry, be happy. Friends, there's no hope in that. Counting all joy does not mean just get over it. God has a purpose for you. Friends, that's just cruel. God cares about our pain. He cares about our sufferings. Friends, there's a problem in our hearts if a friend gets cancer or loses their job and we're happy about it. That's not how we should respond to that. That's not what this text is talking about. What does it mean to count it all joy? We've got to look carefully at these words here. First of all, notice the word all. All here in the Greek is an adjective that's specifically connected to the word joy. It's not a description of the amount here. And this is where this text gets misused. And sometimes when we see the word all, we're thinking of a quantity here or something. And that's not what it's talking about. All here is is an adjective for the word joy. It's describing the type of joy, not the amount of something in this. Friends, it's okay to be sad in the midst of a trial. It's okay to ask questions in the midst of the trial. It's saying here, count it pure joy. The all supports joy. Again, it's not a quantity word here. It's a qualifier for the word joy. Have a full joy. Have a pure joy. Have a complete joy, no matter what's happening around you. And how about the word joy here? Well, again, there's much confusion about that word because joy and happiness are two different things, but they often get equated. Happiness is that jumping up and down and smiling you feel because of circumstances. Your team just won the game. You got the, the raise at work you wanted. Something good has happened. You feel happiness. Joy, friends, is not an emotion. 
Joy is a state of our being that's different than our emotion. To have joy means to have a settled attitude. It means you have peace, contentment, thankfulness, and hope. And that's very different than an emotional feeling or response. What James is trying to help us see here is that Christian, when trials come, think correctly about them. Yes, you may have emotions of sadness and confusion, and that's all okay. But on top of that, have a settled trust in God. Have peace. On top of that, have contentment that God is with you and He's still good. Have thankfulness that God is working in the hardships. Have hope that your sufferings are not in vain. That's what joy is about. That's why I'm saying that we can have not joy, but peace and contentment, because that's at the heart of this. It's not our feeling of happiness that he's driving at. It's our steady state of contentment and peace in God in the midst of whatever is happening. And friends, such is possible. I want you to see how Paul describes it later in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He describes for us that we know for those who love God, how many things? All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, we can have joy, again, not an emotion. We can have that settled, steady state of contentment and peace in all the circumstances we face because we know that God is bigger than all that. But notice something here. All things are not good, but all things work together for good. And that's where, again, we need to be very clear from James 1 here. He's not saying that your trials are good. He's not saying those tough circumstances are good. Some of the trials you're in are because of sin. That's not good. Some of the trials you're in are not because of sin, but just because of brokenness of the world. And that's not good. Cancer is not good. The loss of the job is not good. But in the midst of those bad things, a sovereign good God over all things can bring good out of bad situations for us here. God can take our sufferings, our trials, and bring good out of them. They're not in vain. They have purpose. And if we can understand that, friends, we can have peace and contentment in the hardships. Look at verse 3 back in James here. In James 1, he says this. For, here's the reason why you can have joy or peace and contentment in the trials. He said, for, you know. You can notice the focus on knowing. He's driving you back to your minds to change your thinking. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, God can bring good out of our trials because he's going to use it to test our faith. Well, that may not sound good on the surface, right? I mean, how many of you college students like tests? How many of our youth students really like tests? Like, that doesn't sound good to us because we kind of have an aversion to being tested. But in the Greek here, the word for testing is a word that's not negative like we think. It's a word that's very positive in the original language. The word here for testing means to verify something known to be true. God looks at you and knows you have faith because he gave you faith. So now he's going to let you go through this test to confirm it to you that you, in fact, do have faith in him. God is going to take the trials, these hard things and bad things in life, and use them to anchor you more in your faith in him, to anchor you more in the language of Ephesians of your identity in him. So you can have confidence that he is walking with you, that you are his child. First Peter chapter 1, I want you to see this up on the screen to see how Peter describes the same thing here. In First Peter 1, 6, Peter says, In this you rejoice. So here's the same idea. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, before we go and notice something here, the emotion, not the emotion, sorry, the steady state of rejoicing, of joy, of peace and contentment does not preclude experiencing grief also. And that's where James 1 has been abused to tell people, oh, you shouldn't be grieving. Look, just find joy in the trial. If you see here, they go hand in hand. You're grieved by the trials, but yet you're rejoicing. You're steady. You're steadfast. You have hope in all this. Now, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. 
Did you notice here that God is using trials for a reason? Because, friends, there's things in life that we do not learn apart from the hard days. And in particular, in the hard days, God is going to give us confidence that we are his child in the midst of the hardships. Isn't that the testimony you've heard from so many people? When you talk to someone who's been through a tough trial in their life, and they're out on the other side of it now, and you ask them, how did you get through that? You'll hear people after people say, you know, I don't know how I got through it, but God sustained me. I don't know how that worked out, but God worked that out. I don't know how I made it through, but somehow I had peace that can only come from God. And over and over, the testimonies are of this idea of God confirming for people their faith. They come out of the trial stronger in their confidence that they are, in fact, children of God because of what God has done for them. But notice something here, friends. Not just that God confirms our faith in the trials, but he grows it also. Look back at verse 3 in James 1. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, we don't use the word steadfastness a whole lot. But it's a word that simply means endurance, or I like the translation of it, toughness. In the midst of this, God is toughening our faith here. The word here for steadfastness was a word in Greek for carrying something heavy for a long time. So if at your job you have to carry something heavy for a long time, when you're tired but you keep pressing on, you're steadfast, you're tough, you're enduring, that is the image that we have here before us. That each trial we come through by God's grace is something that God uses to make our faith tougher. Something that he uses to strengthen our faith and our confidence in him. Something that he uses to grow our peace and our contentment. Because that is absolutely amazing that God can take the bad things, the hard things of life, and use them not just to remind us that we're his child, but use it to toughen up our faith as well, to grow our faith in this. But there's even more of what God does in trials. Look at verse 4 here. And let steadfastness, toughness, have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It says that as God does this work in the trials, he makes us perfect. Now, we need to be clear here because we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Perfection only comes in heaven. We're free of temptation and all the trials of this life. This is not something we achieve. Now, what is meant here by the word perfect is mature. In fact, some of your translations may translate that Greek word as to you be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And that's what these three phrases communicate. You're perfect or mature, you're complete, and you're lacking in nothing. They're all saying the same thing. To be complete means to be you're intact. If you get a complete shipment from Amazon, everything's in the box, it's supposed to be in the box, and it's not broken. You're receiving it to be what it's supposed to be. That's what God is doing here. As he toughens our faith, he's making us not just mature, he's making us complete. He's designing us to be more and more like what he made us to be. So much so that he says that through the trials, we begin to lack in nothing. And what are we not lacking in? Let's go back to Romans 8. I read it just a minute ago, but I want to add on the verse beyond that. Romans eight twenty eight. we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, or that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is God doing in the trials? He's conforming us to the image of Christ. Because that's incredible that in the trials, he doesn't just remind us we're his child. He strengthens our faith, and through that, we might say he sanctifies us. He makes us more holy. He makes us more and more like Christ. So let's try to pull all this together, what James is trying to tell us. He's saying your life is going to be hard, but don't think about the hardships like the world. Turn your mind to God's perspective, that the God who is sovereign and all-powerful, like we're just saying about the God who's sovereign over all the trials, is in control, is using these trials, these hardships in your life, to confirm your faith, to show you that you are, in fact, a child of God. 
He's using those trials to strengthen your faith so you're stronger in your belief in Him. And He's using those trials to grow you to be more like Christ, to be more in the image of God and how you live and how you talk and how you serve. God can do all that in the midst of the hardships of our lives. And friends, that perspective is incredibly countercultural, but incredibly biblical. In fact, Paul repeats this in another place. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. I want you to see it here as well. He says, more than that, we rejoice. There's that idea that, that not the emotion, but the state of our soul. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Again, endurance being toughness here. The next verse in verse 4. And endurance produces, what does it produce? Character, holiness, transformation to be more and more like Christ. And that character produces hope. And friends, that's what Paul himself experienced. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Look at how Paul describes his own life. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Again, friends, notice here that there's no minimizing of the pain. There's no minimizing of the hardships. He's not looking to James 1, which was written long before this, to be like, oh, well, I just have to be happy in the midst of all this. I mean, Paul himself says we despaired of life itself. And then verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. I mean, notice what Paul's going through. This is a, a difficult hardship, but the suffering, what was it? It was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul experienced firsthand the difficulties of life. Had a thorn in his side. Whatever physical affliction that was, he endured. He was shipwrecked. He was isolated. He was persecuted. But all that confirmed his faith that he was a child of God. It toughened up. It strengthened his faith. And it grew him in holiness. And particularly grew him in depending not on himself and self-reliance, but on God. Friends, that's the same with what happened in the author of James here. That James himself faced persecution. Skeptics. And I did not mention it last week. He was martyred for his faith. He went through all this as well, and God used it to confirm that he was a child of God, to strengthen his faith, and ultimately to grow him in holiness. So he became known as James the Just. And friends, by God's grace, if we are in Christ, God's going to do the same in us. He's not going to take away the trials. He's not going to take away the hardships of life. But he's going to use those in our lives to confirm that we are his children as we walk through those difficulties looking to him. He's going to strengthen our faith in all that, and he's going to grow us in holiness in the midst of of all these things. Friends, we can have that type of peace and contentment knowing that God uses the trials to grow our faith. That raises an important question for us because that perspective goes everything against everything that my flesh wants. That goes against, against everything that my nature would normally want. That goes against everything the world tells us about how to view life. And so, friends, it's very easy for us as believers to lose that perspective. So the question that we need to wrestle with is this. Will we embrace God's plan for trials are we going to fight against this plan? Because the trials are going to come to me and going to come to you. Will we embrace God's plan for our trials? Or are we going to fight against God's plan? Now, there's two commands in James 1. We focused mostly on the first one, to count, to think about the trials a certain way. But I think the second command in this section may be the harder one for us to obey. That's back in verse 4. Look back at verse 4. This is a very short word, but it's a command here. And let steadfastness have its full Effect. We're commanded here to let something happen. That means we're to not get in the way of something happening. We're not to stop the progression of what is happening here. Friends, the question for us then is God has a plan for the trials that we walk through to bring good to us and to strengthen our faith. Are we going to accept that and let steadfastness have its full effect? Are we going to try to get in the way of God's plan? Are we going to embrace God's plan or try to hijack God's plan? We hijack God's plan. We fight against God's plan when we turn to sin 
to try to escape the pain of our trials. When we turn to wrong thinking and get bitter or angry or get selfish or try to control the circumstances. If we turn to manipulation to try to change the trial with whatever it takes. Well, friends, when the trials come to us, do we look to the grace of God for peace and contentment? Not necessarily enjoying the trials, but trusting in the goodness of God. Do we run to pray? Do we run to study His Word? Do we run to Christian community to say, help me, I'm struggling to think correctly in the midst of this hardship. Would you pray for me? Would you help me get my mind back on the goodness of God? Are we running to those things and finding thankfulness, peace, security, hope, and joy in the midst of trials, knowing that God will use them to redeem us and to grow us in all that He's doing? Friends, we can have peace and contentment even on the hardest of days, knowing that God will use them to grow our faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you're sovereign over all things, like we sang earlier. God, that whatever trial we're going through today or have been through or will face in the weeks to come, God, is not catching you off guard. God, you're never up in heaven going, oops, I didn't see that coming. God, you're never in heaven wringing your hands going, what am I going to do about this situation? God, we are anchored in the fact that you are sovereign, ruling over all things, and nothing happens without your permission. Nothing happens outside of your control. And God, that is an anchor and a hope for us. So, Lord, for the brothers and sisters today who are in the midst of trials, God, I ask for grace upon grace upon grace for them, Lord. That you would guard their hearts from running after a perspective on them the way the world does. God, would you give them grace upon grace to, to run to you, honest with their questions, honest with their doubts, honest with their struggles, much like we saw in the Psalms, but run to you knowing that you, a good God, are sovereign over all things, and you can bring good for them in the midst of these hardships. Lord, I pray you would anchor us all in that because if we're not in a trial today, Lord, we know that they're going to come. So whenever the hardships hit for me and for each of these precious brothers and sisters, God, would you have us so grounded in your word, so grounded in knowing your character and knowing your greatness and your goodness, Lord, that when those hard days come, Lord, we don't run after the world. We don't run trying to escape the pain. We don't run turning our backs on you. But God, we, with peace and with contentment, say, Lord, I don't understand, but God, you're good. Make me teachable. Grow me in this. Lord, may we run to your plans. May you sanctify us and grow us in the midst of the hard days as well as the good days. But we'll give you the praise for all that, Lord, because this is so countercultural. This is so counter to what our flesh wants and our nature wants. So we ask for strength that can only come from you, Lord. We can't have enough determination to think about the world this way. But God, you give more grace. And Lord, I pray you would give more grace to transform our thinkings, that we would reckon, that we consider, we think about all the situations we face with peace and contentment and joy, knowing that you're good and you're reigning over all. Lord, may you be glorified in our lives as you give us grace to live out and walk our days this way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning?